All right, so 27 is where we're starting, page 27. And uh, it's kind of an interesting thing as we study the Holy Spirit. You know, we're doing systematic theology, kind of basically, is what we're doing. If you remember all the way back at the first lesson, where with systematic theology, you kind of have these sections that go along, where at the beginning we were talking about uh, the nature of God, that's theology proper where we talked about the Trinity and we talked about God's attributes, okay? And then we also, you know, we talk about um, uh, the study of man, anthropology, okay? And then you get into uh, the study of Christ, Christology, okay? And we kind of go along and we have these different subjects that we're covering uh, subject by subject. Well, when we get to pneumatology, which is the study of the Spirit, that's where we've been, it kind of touches on all of these, <laughs> and it goes forward and touches on subjects we haven't covered yet. So today, you'll see at the top of your handout on 27 that the title of this is He Makes Us Holy, and it's broken down into two sections. At the start of 27 and at the start of 28, you'll see the section titles, Salvation and Sanctification. So this is touching on soteriology. Do you need a handout? Okay, very good. Um, uh, salvation and sanctification, which is the study of salvation, soteriology. But what we're doing here is looking specifically at the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation and in our sanctification, at just as uh, who He is as a person in that work. When we get to the next, the next section I think is bibliology, and then we're going to get to soteriology. So when we get to that section, there will be all kinds of things we're going to examine about how we're saved, how that process works, and, uh, and all of that. And you, you're probably going to have some of those questions today, because we're going to look at some passages here that get into that, and you're going to say, well, what about this, what about that? And some of that stuff I'm just going to have to say, we'll get to it later, okay? Because we are in the section talking about the Holy Spirit, so as we go through these passages, we really want to focus on what the Holy Spirit is doing in salvation and in sanctification, all right? And the big idea right from the beginning, this is your blank at the top, the Holy Spirit is with Christians individually beginning at the moment of salvation. Now, of course, there is an aspect in which He is with the church corporately, okay? so not just with Christians individually, but with the church corporately. Uh, but we'll look at that when we get to ecclesiology, the study of the church. Okay, We're just not there uh, yet. But uh, the big idea is that the Holy Spirit is with Christians individually, beginning at the moment of salvation. Now, by way of a little bit of review, before we jump into these passages here, say you're talking to somebody, and this person says, I've never heard of the Holy Spirit, tell me what the Bible has to say. Based on what we've studied so far, and you can use your notes to cheat, you can go back to, where did we start on this? It was page 24, okay? Really, page 24 would be a great place to go back and look. What would you start saying to this person who's never heard of the Holy Spirit? Okay, divine author of? Okay. Yeah, so he's, he's the author of the Bible. That's a great basic to communicate. What else? Mm-hmm. Very good. He is God. What if you wanted to get a little more specific on that, though? Okay, yeah, you kind of got to get into a Trinity conversation, don't you? And say, uh, He is God, along with Father and Son. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, there is one God. The Holy Spirit is God. 
And how do you know that the Holy Spirit is God? What are some things you could share with this person to sort of prove that point? Again, page 24 would be very helpful for you here. You can't just make a claim and then walk away, right? You've got to back it up with the Bible. What does the Bible say that tells us that the Holy Spirit is God? Good. Yes, good. Okay, so you have, have passages like Hebrews 9.14 that speak of the Holy Spirit as being eternal. You've got 1 Corinthians 2 that talks about the Holy Spirit being omniscient. But was it, did you say something, Jen? Someone said something. Renee, did you say something? Who said something? Yes, good. Yes, so you think about God's attributes, and, and those are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. He's omnipresent. He's divinely powerful. He's called absolutely holy. He's the spirit of truth. He's omnipresent. Psalm 139 talks about he is inescapable. You cannot escape from the spirit's presence. Who could that be said of but God alone? What, what's a, a passage where the Holy Spirit is explicitly called God? It's on page 24. There's a passage where he is called God. Right? So that's, yeah, at the very beginning of Genesis 1-2, I believe, where, yeah, he was hovering over the face of the waters. He's not explicitly called God there, but what would you connect that to to prove that he is divine? What's the big idea? Why is, why is he mentioned there in that way? Very good. He's not a creature. He is creator. So over and over again in this class, we've been talking about Creator, creature, divide, okay? There's but one creator, he is eternal, and he's eternally powerful. Everything else is a creature or an aspect of creation. And there's the Holy Spirit at the beginning, he's there, he was not created, he was already there, he is creator, okay, so that's good. Is there, go ahead. Mm-hmm, good. Yeah, so there's an implication there, right? where God is using the plural, let us make man in our image. That's good. There's a New Testament passage where he is explicitly called God. Has to do with, no, has to do with uh, the book of Acts. Has to do with a couple people dropping dead. Okay, very good. Acts 5. And what's going on with this married couple here? It was till death did, do they part, and they died and they parted. So what happened here? Ananias and Sapphira, what did they do? They lied to the Spirit, and Peter says, you lied to God. Very good. Okay. You lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. We looked at that a few weeks ago, where he is explicitly called God there. Okay. Do you get the immediate sentence of death, dropping dead for lying to man? Very, very rarely do you see that, right? Uh, can you imagine if that were the case? But they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. We may have nursery people back there. It looks like we have some visitors with little kids. Let's, yeah, yeah. They're, get them before, before they escape. Before they escape. Someone go. Someone go. Our nursery workers are playing hooky today. <laughs> yeah, all of our uh, typical regular nursery attenders are uh, sick or not here for some reason, and so our nursery workers were getting to come to our Sunday school class today. Okay, so good. With all that in mind then, the Holy Spirit is God. Let's get into specifically how He functions in salvation, all right? Ephesians 1 is where we'll be. We can all turn there together, Ephesians chapter 1. MacArthur calls it the magnum opus of Trinitarian passages. So if you're thinking about a great passage 
that talks about the Trinity. Ephesians 1 is going to be a, a great place to go. The passage, it's the passage that describes in the greatest detail the works of the persons of God in salvation. Okay? Ephesians 1 will get you to that explanation uh, most efficiently and succinctly than any other passage in the Bible. Okay, so let's uh, consider this passage, verses 3 to 14, and um, it's a bit of a longer passage. I think I'll go ahead and read it, and let's look at specifically what the Holy Spirit is doing, and he shows up toward the end of the passage, so you got to hang in there and focus, all right? Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ.'" Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth." In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise." who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Wow. Okay. You think there are a few things to look at in there? That's pretty amazing. Okay. Well, let's uh, keep run your eyes over that passage, and I want you to see what the Father is up to in that passage. What's the Father doing Though you may not see the, the term Father used specifically, uh, we know, of course, in the Old Testament, a lot you see uh, the gen generic name God, or in the Greek, Theos, a lot of times that will mean the Father. Okay, well, what is the Father up to? What is the Son up to? And then we'll talk about what the Spirit is up to in this passage. What is the Father doing? Okay, so he's blessing. I'll put that. I'll put it like a verb. Blessing. Okay, and what else did he do? I mean, there are probably a few different answers. Yeah, there's a predestining and a choosing that's happening, isn't there? In verse four. Okay, so we'll say blessing, choosing, predestining. And we know that it's talking about the Father because we are being chosen or predestined in who? In the Son. Good. Okay, so we are, um, all of these things, we are blessed, chosen, and predestined in Him. 
How many times does that phrase, in him, come up in the passage? Quite a few, right? <laughs> you see that over and over again? In him, in him. Okay. Um, what about in verse 7 do we learn specifically about the Son? Okay. How so? Good. Died. He died for us. And this is... Uh, redemption. We see redemption in Him. Forgiveness. This is the work of the Son. The Father did not die for us. The Son died for us. Okay, So there's a distinction between Father and Son in these areas. The Father is blessing, choosing, predestining in Christ. Christ is the one who died for us, providing for us redemption and forgiveness. And then let's drop down to the end of the passage, those last two verses, 13 and 14, and see what the Spirit is doing. What's He doing? Good. Sealing. Not the thing above your head. Uh, the different kind of sealing. Okay, He seals us. And what else? Verse 14. Good. He's given as a pledge. So He seals us. And he's given to us as a pledge or guarantee or down payment. You see that too in the New Testament, Second um, Corinthians chapter one and Second Corinthians chapter five. The Holy Spirit is given to us. So the Son isn't given to us in the same way that the Spirit is given to us. Hopefully, you know that. That passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. So, of course, in that sense, the son is given to us. But the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment during this specific time, during this administration of the times, to use Paul's language here, or this dispensation, given to us as our hope of heaven for what is to come, our down payment. And he seals us in Christ. The Father chooses us in Christ. The Holy Spirit seals us in Christ. How amazing this is. Uh, so you start to see the Trinity kind of come together here in this passage, don't you? Where Father, Son, and Spirit have particular functions as particular persons within the Godhead in our salvation. Now again, uh, remember we're trying to focus on the Holy Spirit's activity here. There are a lot of questions I'm sure that you have about some of these things uh, that we could entertain now, but mostly we want to just focus on the Holy Spirit. So I'll pause there and see... What thoughts or questions do you have to share? <laughs> do you have questions about what questions you should have? Don't need to be bashful. Could you elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. the, uh, he is the means through which God disciplines us and reminds us that we are children of God. Yeah, and Romans 8 too. He testifies with our spirit. God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Yeah, that's good. Good. He stays with us. He's given to us and he stays. He remains with us. Very cool. Yes. We'll not leave you orphans. Yeah. And uh, was it, it's repeated in Hebrews 13.5, I think. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, that's it. Good, good. Okay, well, I was expecting more questions. It's okay. 
Maybe the next passage will trigger some questions. Uh, oh, I guess I have to talk about this passage still from the screen. <laughs> I have a bad habit of that, don't I? There's a lot to see here, but most of the discussion will have to wait until yeah, the proverbial next week. Okay, what's the order of events? We already talked about that. Sorry. After hearing and believing the gospel, the Holy Spirit now becomes a permanent resident in a believer's life. Aren't you happy for that? You should be. Okay, he's a permanent resident in the believer's life. The Holy Spirit is a down payment for what is to come, God's complete redemption at last. Total, full salvation will occur whenever we are resurrected, when there's the total redemption of our bodies and we are raised anew. That is the, the aim, the goal of this salvation. So right now, like that song says, it's only just begun, right? Is that the carpenters? Okay, all right. It's only just begun. Yeah. Take it away, Renee. Uh, <laughs> All right, <clears throat> very good. Well, let's go look at these notes before we go to the next passage. The Spirit also seals the Christian. God secures our salvation until the day of redemption by sealing His people with the Spirit. Christians have a surety of salvation by reading what God says has happened in their lives. We go back and we read Ephesians 1, and if you're a Christian, you say, that has happened to me. You can put yourself in there if you're a believer and say, God has sealed me with the Holy Spirit. He's been given to me as a down payment. Okay. It should be extremely exciting. Yes, it should be. Yeah, it is a sad thing that a lot of times our experience with the Holy Spirit, if it's not actually, maybe it just seems as though it's just words on paper. When the whole point of Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit will be sent to you is that we would have the living God with us as like an experience through our lives. He, he tells us that he's not going to leave us as orphans. He's going to um, ask the Father and the Father will send the Spirit in his name. So we won't be just left with words on a page, though that's extremely important. We have God's words and we cherish them. But we have the Holy Spirit of promise who abides with us continually convicting, leading, guiding, directing, bringing forth fruit, bestowing spiritual gifts. And we'll get into all that soon enough. But, but he is like a real person who's really with us every day, every moment of every day. So we need to lean into that more, uh, particularly those of us like we at this church who are on the non-charismatic side of things. Okay. We... Because we've seen some of the abuses on the charismatic side of things, of people who want to speak and babble, which is not a biblical practice, or um, claim that they're getting new divine revelation today, we tend to shy away from the talk of experiencing the Holy Spirit, because our mind kind of jumps to that. It doesn't have to. Don't let people who have messed things up ruin a good doctrine for you. Okay, this is a good doctrine that we get from Scripture that we have the Holy Spirit and we live with Him as He abides with us day by day. All right. Okay, now I know for sure the next slide takes us to the next passage, so I'm going to pause and see if there's anything else now. Lanny. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, um, it should, yeah, for sure. It's what that hymn says, the things of the world grow strangely dim. That's the way it should be. Yeah. Okay, well, let's go to Titus 3. Titus chapter 3, a marvelous passage. All of these are marvelous passages. When I 
ascribe an adjective like that. That's just my opinion, of course, because all of God's word is marvelous. But I really enjoy this one, really like this one. Titus chapter 3, four verses, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Would someone like to read that for us? Titus 3, 4 through 7. Stan, go ahead. All right. So, again, let's focus on what the Holy Spirit is doing in this passage, and I won't get too far away from my slideshow here. Who is committing the action in this passage? So let's consider the actions that are described, and let's think about who's doing what. Starting in verse 4, what's going on and who's doing it? Okay, so you have an appearance of... What specifically? Because we have something appearing, it says at the end of the verse. It's the blank and the blank of God. Good. Yeah, the kindness and the love appeared. Now that's an interesting way of thinking of that, isn't it? You don't typically think of Jesus' coming as the appearance of God's kindness. That's a cool way to think about that. That God's kindness and love showed up. And then what did he do in verse 5? He saved us. Amen. But what did we not do? Okay, good. So you have God doing something positively. We have us being passive here. Those who are being saved. Notice that he saved us. And then he continues using that first person plural pronoun. Us and we, he saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, the things that we have done, but according to what? His mercy. And how is his mercy put into action? What's the following phrase? Okay, so the Holy Spirit here is like the agent of the mercies of God by washing, regenerating, and renewing the Christian. That's pretty cool. Okay. So God accomplishes his task. We basically just explained it through the means of the Holy Spirit's washing. A person is regenerated at the moment of belief by the Holy Spirit. And the word for regeneration is the word that means to be born again. That's the, uh, particularly in the original language, if you look at the Greek word, it's like a compound word, like our word uh, doghouse or something like that. Two words put together. That's what this is, born again, okay? He causes us to be born once more. It's pretty amazing, okay? New birth. Yes. So we'll get to that in our soteriology section, right? Okay, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, that gets to, of course, a, uh, a relatively fundamental divide within Christianity as far as Uh, where people lean on how God's sovereignty works in salvation. If God's so active and we're so passive like this passage describes, what what are the implications for actually believing? We'll get to that in a few weeks. Come back next week, right? That's that's, that's the catchphrase around here. Come back next week. I'll just wear a t-shirt for Sunday school. It says, come back next week. Kick the can down the road. But the Holy Spirit, of course, is very much involved. He is the one at the moment of salvation who does does the washing and the renewing. And verse 6, he is poured out by God richly through Jesus Christ. So verse 6, you have all three persons of the Trinity here, don't you? You have the Father 
pouring out the Spirit through the Son. So he pours out, I have no idea if this graphic is going to work out, pours out the Spirit through the Son. That's pretty amazing. And where's he poured out? Where's the Holy Spirit poured out? This passage might not get specific on that, but what do you think? Where is he poured out? Okay, and we can get a little bit more specific if you want to turn with me to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5 uses the same pouring out language in reference to the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. So this is one you should jot down in your notes in conjunction with this passage. It's a great cross-reference where it says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So affecting the very moral center of who we are, affecting the, the seat of our consciousness, our heart. That's uh, what makes us you know, different from animals is that we're made in the image of God and we have this moral center that God has given us that the Bible often refers to as our heart or our mind. Well, the Holy Spirit has been poured out bringing God's love into our hearts. Pretty amazing. Great illustration, isn't it? Pouring out. That's a generosity uh, type of illustration where God is generously giving himself to the believer. Okay, so any thoughts or questions on the Holy Spirit's activity there? Titus 3, Romans 5, 5. All right. Bounce right along. John chapter 3. We'll need to volunteer here for John chapter 3. The first eight verses, very famous passage, John 3. Jesus interacting with Nicodemus and talking about this whole born-again business. So John 3, 1 through 8. Would someone like to read that for us? Kendra, go ahead. Okay, we'll pause there just for a moment. Jesus makes a very important monumental statement here. How are you going to get to heaven? Well, you have to be, according to Jesus, verse 3, you have to be born again. There's no getting to heaven, no entering the kingdom of God, no participation in the new earth. None of that until you're born again. So Nicodemus now asks the very natural next question. So keep, keep reading, Kendra, down to verse 8. Okay, fascinating response from Jesus. People who believe in Jesus for salvation are made new through the regeneration of the Spirit. So if we're thinking basic takeaways here from what Jesus says, I think we can say that, right? Verses 5 through 8 there, uh, where Jesus is teaching Nicodemus what this means. The Holy Spirit is an active agent here in causing the person to be born again. He's the one who comes upon somebody that a person would be born again. Christians have been born from above. That's another way of translating that. Washed clean, recreated by the powerful work of the Spirit. We looked at this in 2 Corinthians 5, as we've been going through 2 Corinthians in the sermon series. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Been born again. You've been made new. And that's the Holy Spirit's work, is that a person would be made new from the inside out, someone would be born again. And he ties this directly to the Spirit. I love the illustration in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it, 
but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And then he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's God's business, isn't it? This is God's work. You, can't, you don't have a meteorologist in front of the map saying, okay, we have the Holy Spirit jet stream going this way this week or anything like that, right? You can't, you can't master God's business. This is up to God. The Holy Spirit is the active agent here in causing someone to be born again to a living hope, to use Peter's terminology there. Okay, questions on that passage? Yeah, there's, there, there's the most obvious question lying on the surface there, right? What does that mean? Because there are, of course, some people that will say, <clears throat> see, this refers to baptism. You must be baptized. Well, what evidence is there that Jesus had that in view? Um, I think it's, boy, that's pretty rough to try to figure. He meant baptism there. Um, because there wasn't even such a thing as Christian baptism then, was there? No, I mean, there, there was the baptism of John, and we see in Acts 19, whenever Paul came across some believers who were, had only heard of John's baptism, he baptized them again. And they were baptized with Christian baptism. And it wasn't until uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection that he explicitly commands the disciples to go out baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian Christian baptism. Um, another view that people take is that water refers to natural birth, to be born of water and of the Spirit. So you can't go into the kingdom of God if you haven't been born first and then born second. That's kind of how Jesus would be explaining that. I say to you, unless one is born naturally and then born spiritually, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that's a possibility that some people have taken. And there are like six different views on this. Well, yeah, so there's, there's also, a, a, I think, a view that holds some significant weight is when uh, you read the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel in particular, it says uh, God tells Israel that he's going to sprinkle clean water on them, that they will be made pure by God's sprinkling of clean water. So um, that, of course, has a specific application for the people of Israel. However, it does tell us something about what happens when a person is reconciled to God, brought into relationship with God, saved by God. You could say that there's a, uh, a purification that happens by God's doing with water as a metaphor, as an illustration. I mean, even that Titus 3 passage we were just in, the washing of the Holy Spirit, the washing of regeneration. And here we have regeneration being talked about, this born-again stuff, and talking about the Holy Spirit being involved. And so there's this purging of sin from God's perspective as he saves someone and imputes his righteousness to that person, that that person would then be holy, born of water and the Spirit. So those are the three main views. You get the baptism view, the natural birth view, and the um, sprinkling of water by God tied back to Ezekiel and some other prophets. And... Yeah, that, he was talking about baptism there, of course. I mean, he uses the word baptism. That word actually means immerse. It's kind of funny. Uh, that word from the Greek is not translated. It's transliterated. It's kind of a funny thing that's happened with that word. Uh, because if we were translating that word, we would put in the English immerse them. Because the word in Greek is baptizo. So instead of 
coming or putting the English definition of it. We just kind of made the Greek word an English word. But he says, go and, and immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So after his resurrection, he gives the disciples the command to go out and to baptize. At this point, at the start of Jesus' ministry, where he's having this interaction with Nicodemus after his first miracle, the wedding of Cana, uh, we don't have Christian baptism being an aspect of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He got baptized by John. That was uh, a baptism of repentance. John's baptism was. And so to insert Jesus' teaching from years later after the resurrection and come back and put it here, I think would be disingenuous, not respecting the context of where Jesus was in his earthly ministry at this time. Hmm. Explain more what you mean. I don't think I'm tracking with you. Oh, yeah, there you go. Like a... Wow. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, well, totally. Uh, Christ is... Who is your life? Colossians chapter 3, right? Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a way to use the word colloquially or as an idiom. Yeah, sure. Good. Other thoughts or questions on this passage or what Jesus meant with water? Yeah, I mean, it's when you're, when you're born of water, I mean, <laughs> unless this is the natural birth view, if that's what Jesus really had in mind, pretty much every other view would have to do with some sort of a purging where you're going in to that event one way and you're coming out a different way. Yeah. Yes. No longer a slave to sin. Yep, absolutely. Good. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yep, absolutely. Yep. He would have known Ezekiel for sure. Context matters, doesn't it? Uh, what, what's, what are the three most important factors in real estate? Location, location, location. Well, kind of the same thing with Bible study. What's the location of the passage or the context of the passage? Context, 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 okay? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, and that'll be a whole new way of, like, when, again, speaking of the prophets, you think of uh, Zechariah or... Amos or one of those prophets that talks about in that time when the uh, feasts are celebrated again, Feast of Booths and all that, it'll, it'll be done without sin for Israel. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Well, that's a, we'll get there like, oh, I, I, I put my sections, it's like way down here, that's, I don't know how many months it'll be. Next week, come back next week, right? Okay. <laughs> next week. Next week. <clears throat> yep. All right. Um, let's go to Acts. We, a familiar passage. We've already referenced it once today. Acts 1, 1 through 5. And we'll be in the book of Acts for the rest of our time today. Probably won't get through all these passages. Now, the first three passages I showed you are probably the most prominent passages when it comes to the Holy Spirit's uh, activity in our salvation. This is, again, you know, of course, from my perspective. That's why they're not in Bible book order, okay? At least the first two, Ephesians and Titus. But now we're kind of going through in the order of the New Testament, looking at some passages in Acts and then in 1 Corinthians. So Acts chapter 5, again, verses 1 through 5. 
Would someone uh, please read that for us? Acts 1, 1 to 5. I was just thinking as I was going there in my phone, what does 5, 1 to 5 say about salvation? So this makes a lot more sense. Thank you, Mike. Acts chapter 1, <laughs> which we have not talked about in this class today. Acts chapter 1, 1 to 5. That would be great. Go ahead, Mike. Okay, there we go. Jesus promises a baptism with the Holy Spirit. What on earth is that? You guys got thoughts on that? Hmm. Hmm. So this would... I don't think so. I think this is something that's for all believers. All, all, all believers are going to experience this. Yeah, well, you'd have to get water from somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you were in the middle of Sahara Desert, uh, someone would have had to come reach you. Some Christian would have to come, come find you, right? Because Jesus didn't go to the middle of the Sahara Desert. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. No, you'd have to have water for baptism. I mean, you have to have water to live. So someone in the middle of the Sahara Desert has got some kind of water, right, to live. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if there were perhaps some exceptions for methodology during that time. Uh, but there would have to be water around, and so water would have to be involved. So all I'm saying is this wouldn't be something, uh, this wouldn't be a baptism for people who had no access to water. I don't think that's what's in view here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all right. So if the answer to that is yes, which I believe it is, now we have to explain what this baptism in or with the Holy Spirit is. So what is that? What, what do we got? Okay, so it's, a, it's an action of the Holy Spirit that's based on a promise. Okay, James? With water. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you have on um, the one hand this reality that as soon as you're, you're saved, and really the reason why you're saved is because you've been born again of the Spirit of God. And then on the other hand, you have uh, this idea of water baptism. Okay. Well, one of those has to certainly come before the other, doesn't it? You, are, you have to be saved before you are going to be uh, immersed in water. That's the way the Bible lays it out. You don't immerse somebody in water in order to become saved. That's not the teaching that we have in Scripture. And so um, this is an interesting promise that you will be baptized with the Spirit. Because you have this added layer of complication. Well, aren't these guys believers? Aren't these the disciples of Jesus? Aren't they the ones who like followed Him around? And yeah, they... Messed up, you think of Peter's denial of Jesus around the crucifixion. Yeah, they messed up, but they're back, and here he is appearing to them. And he's telling them, those who are believers, that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I thought we had to be baptized with the Holy Spirit to be a believer. Now he's telling believers that they're going to be baptized. So you've got to figure all this stuff out, and it can be a little complicated, can't it? Well, that factors into it, doesn't it? Because if we're saying... <clears throat> Now, that the Bible teaches us that a becoming saved means that you're washed and regenerated and you're renewed by the Holy Spirit, how could these guys have been saved whenever Jesus says, 
you will be baptized later. Okay, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, so, so you have the Holy Spirit coming upon people and leaving. Remember this? We covered this uh, earlier uh, in an earlier lesson, that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's function was different. He would come upon people, and then he would leave. Saul is the prime example of that. Okay? And David praying, take not your Holy Spirit from me. But you see it in other places. So you have that going on in the Old Testament, but were people saved in the Old Testament? Well, yeah. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith, Paul says. But did he have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit that we do today? No. Okay. So now we've got to figure out, when did this new relationship that Christians would have with the Holy Spirit begin? Did it begin while Jesus was walking on the earth? Did it begin once he rose from the dead? Did it begin right at his ascension? Did it begin after his ascension? This is where it gets a little complicated. And uh, James just made allusion to the upper room. And so I've got more questions on here, but we need to read it. So let's go and let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, because they were promised, these believers were promised that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, signifying a new work of God. And in Acts chapter 2, we start to see this. Verses 1 to 4, who would read that for us? Acts 2, 1 to 4. All right. So you have, during Jesus' earthly ministry, we looked at this last week or the week before, in the book of John, he's promising that the helper, the comforter, the counselor is going to come. Now he provides more detail. Acts chapter 1, right before his ascension, he says, you'll be baptized by him. You'll be baptized with him. You'll be baptized in him. And he's going to make the disciples new. Well, then you get to the upper room, and then you have this event, and we have to ask, is this the baptism of the Spirit? And it certainly seems to me like this is. What is this baptism in or with the Spirit? I shouldn't have said of there. That's bad of me. This baptism with the Spirit appears to be this event in the upper room at Pentecost. They were sitting there in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit appears to them, and they evidence his presence by speaking with other tongues. Well, as we consider that's how this played out, we do also have to ask, is this normal? Is this how you were baptized with the Spirit? <laughs> Could reveal a lot about you if how you answer that. Okay. Were you baptized with the Spirit by gathering together with believers and praying and the first time that you were filled with Him or you were baptized with them, was when you had this miraculous event where you spontaneously began speaking in a previously unknown language. No, that's not what happened to you. It's not what happened to me. Correct. Well, yeah, um, let me come back to that for a moment. Uh, because the, the big idea, of course, is that the speaking of other languages was a sign of the Spirit. How, did, how do you know that the Holy Spirit was there? Well, it was evidenced through this miraculous sign of speaking these other languages. And uh, I think it's interesting to consider that also potentially as a sign of judgment. I, I need to study this more. But there's one pastor I know who talked about how um, the, the day of Pentecost was a sign of judgment against Israel in the, the languages that were being spoken. If you remember at uh, the time of Babel, 
God judged the people by giving them other languages, right? And they dispersed. And that was a judgment against their uh, self-exaltation. Well, here you have at Pentecost, the Jews who have rejected their Messiah, the Jews, I mean, by and large, of course, there were some Jews who believed, but generally speaking, the nation had rejected their king. And so now as the church begins, and that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2, the start of the church, you have the message of Jesus going out in other languages, not just Hebrew, as a judgment against the people of Israel that God is now going to be dealing with a multinational church, an international church. It's an interesting idea, and need to dwell on that some more. But uh, the, the big idea that's undisputable, is that the speaking of other languages was the sign that the Holy Spirit was among them. And to Lanny's point, this did kick off a period of intense, miraculous signs that were displayed in the church. Not just uh, the speaking of other languages, but you also had the working of miracles, prophecies that were going on, uh, healings that were happening, mostly by the apostles. You have this taking place in the first century. And uh, I would... Imagine that not every believer spoke in tongues when baptized with the Holy Spirit, uh, but of course it was something that happened. You go to Acts chapter 10 and you've got this business with uh, Cornelius, and Peter goes to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his family and friends. They're Gentiles. They believe in the gospel, and what do they do? They speak with other languages. And Peter makes the connection, and he's explaining this to the other disciples in Acts chapter 11, and he says, they spoke with other languages just like we did. It was the same sign given to represent the same event that the, the Holy Spirit had baptized them. Okay? So that's what was going on in the first century to signify that the Holy Spirit was going out not just to the believing Jews, but to the believing Gentiles as well, and God was building His church. Okay? whole lot of information I just dropped on you there, but... Uh, we got two minutes left, and if you got any questions or thoughts, let's hear them. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you'll be immersed with the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Laney. We do have 90 seconds left. Yes, right. <laughs> It is a ball of wax, and um, that is a view that some people have taken, which I don't like. I don't like that view. He, he was very clearly filled with the Spirit in that moment and led by the Spirit. Did that mean he became infallible? No. Um, but it's also the Word of God. This is inspired revelation. In that moment, as he was preaching, was what he was saying inspired? I think it was, right? We, we accept this as Scripture. So I don't think he was... Um, misspeaking or quoting the wrong scripture there. The whole day of the Lord stuff from Joel 2, right? Why does Peter talk about dreams and visions and the end coming upon? Uh, I, I have an explanation of that I'm comfortable with, but let's see. You'll have to wait till next week. Yeah, next week. Okay. Tomorrow never comes. Next week never comes. Yeah. No, it'll come eventually. One more question before we dismiss. Anybody else got something? Good? Well, I just jotted down Isaiah 28, 11. I need to look at that because that's one that's not in the, not tucked away in the noggin. So I'll check that out. Okay, well, let me pray and then we'll go on to the next thing. 
God, we thank you so much for your spirit. We thank you for the way that you've saved us and then you've set us on this course of growing in Christ-likeness, conforming to the image of our Savior. We ask that today you would bless our time together, that we'd have a sweet fellowship as we open your word and look into the amazing book of 2 Corinthians, that we would uh, just cherish each word and honor you rightly today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 